are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical. Good afternoon, and welcome to Chemical World. I am Kenna Crampton, Membership Director here at KDNK Community Radio. And I am Maggie Saldine, founder and director of High Rockies Harm Reduction. And it is a beautiful April, a wonderful spring. We are enjoying out there and we are heading into a pretty interesting legislative session here in Colorado in terms of things happening with some substances around the state. That's right. Over the past few years, overdoses have skyrocketed across the nation and the state of Colorado. The extremely lethal synthetic opioid fentanyl has been responsible for an exponential increasing number of deaths in Colorado since 2018. Now, it is anticipated that fentanyl will surpass prescription drugs as the leading cause of opioid overdose. Maggie, can you tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing with, in terms of fentanyl? Yeah, fentanyl has completely taken over the illicit drug landscape because it's a more economic opioid. It's easier to produce something in a lab, it's cheaper, and it's quicker than relying on opium poppy cultivation. And traditionally, people move from prescription opioids to stronger drugs like heroin as tolerance is built to the euphoric and pain-killing effects of the drug. So it makes sense that we would see people now making the switch to fentanyl, but there really isn't any other option right now for people who are addicted to opioids. Everything is going to be fentanyl because it just makes more sense to manufacture this drug. But even worse, now we're seeing all street drugs contaminated with fentanyl because it makes more money for drug dealers. Anyone who ever uses cocaine, molly, ecstasy pills, or pretty much any other drug bought off the street or online is now at risk of overdose. Fentanyl is 10 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine, and it's much more lipid-soluble, meaning it's going to cross the blood-brain barrier and kill you a lot faster than traditional opioids will. Iraqi's harm reduction recently signed an open letter to the Colorado legislators warning against creating higher penalties for fentanyl-related charges. This was based on the anticipation that legislation will be proposed later this year that will make simple fentanyl possession a felony that would and would treat any fentanyl overdose as a homicide. House Bill 1326, titled Fentanyl Accountability and Prevention, was introduced to Colorado legislation legislators on March 28th. These efforts come from a place of trying to stem the intense fentanyl crisis we're in right now. But Maggie, can you tell us why you signed this letter opposing these efforts? Yeah, I would have to say that the number one lesson we learned from the war on drugs is that criminalization and punishment rarely does anyone any good. In fact, it usually only makes matters worse by giving individuals less reason to get healthy when the system's designed to help them treat people struggling with addiction like untouchables. Not to mention the added stress and responsibility of court dates, fines, classes, drug tests, etc. I've seen people in this valley go homeless because it was too difficult to balance all of life's other responsibilities in addition to the extremely high and totally unrealistic expectations of drug courts, which are a great resource in our community, but again, not necessarily working the way that they're intended to. But that's a story for another day. I don't believe that creating 
creating higher penalties for fentanyl would do any good is the bottom line. Did creating higher penalties for crack as opposed to cocaine help anyone? Not at all. It only succeeded at unnecessarily criminalizing a generation of people of color. And here we can see the same themes. Individuals with resources and no history of substance abuse can readily access opioids from any doctor and possession is completely legal. But the street user who, unknowingly or not, has fentanyl is now classified as a felon, which is an issue, again, because we might not even know that there's fentanyl in the drug as the user. Mm -hmm. Additionally, charging fentanyl overdoses as homicides would undo all of the good work our 911 Good Samaritan law has done in Colorado. Right now, if you were to call 911 in the state of Colorado to report a known or suspected overdose, you will not face any criminal charges for drug paraphernalia, possession, or intoxication. But if we charge fentanyl overdoses as homicides, we will immediately go back to the dark ages of friends and family Family, dumping people on hospital doors or leaving them to die alone for fear of personal prosecution. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Comments? I could keep going. I'm sorry. That's oh, it was a lot. No. No. <laughs> um, no, that's, I mean, it's just so much information, but it's, um, it's all really good information. I, and if you are wondering about legalization and decriminalization and all of that, we have other episodes about that. But I think if you listen to this show regularly, you know that both Maggie and I kind of see that the decriminalization of drugs makes a lot more sense when it comes to treating people more like humans. And, you know, we're all we're all struggling, as we know, in this last few years, the overdoses, like we said, have skyrocketed. And uh, these are the people that are struggling anyway, mm -hmm. a lot of the time, you know. And so I think we're just like you said, we're just going to start treating them more like criminals. And that just doesn't make sense really when you know like when if someone wants to actually get clean the more they have against them the longer it's going to take them to get to that point of wanting of actually getting clean absolutely and putting just more to do's on the plate of somebody who is already struggling so much that they need to turn to substances like drugs or alcohol to cope like that's yeah. not going to help that person absolutely you know we were anticipating this legislation to come out when I originally signed the letter and did an interview with the Grand Junction Sentinel and then yeah the bill dropped at the end of March and so now we can actually see the first rendition um, going back to just what you said real quick about decriminalization so we believe that decriminalizing drugs makes them safe the the, the opioids that you get from your doctor like oxycodone or hydrocodone they're still lethal and addictive but at least you know there's not fentanyl in them it's highly mm -hmm. unlikely that you're going to find cannabis with fentanyl because cannabis is regulated mm -hmm. and then we see drugs like kratom that are completely unscheduled being sold in gas stations like their matcha green tea and they're totally lethal opioids but we have no data because we have no regulation on that drug whatsoever so having that regulation helps a lot and saves lives and decriminalization leads to regulation yeah. And so what's interesting is now we and I'll get to what this bill actually is looking like, um, because I haven't seen anything yet about charging fentanyl overdoses as homicides, because, again, like that just really who's that going to help? It's just going to create a lot more issues and a lot more fear. But one place that this bill came out of is there's a lot of frustration because in 2019, Colorado, similarly to the state of Oregon, actually did decriminalize the majority of drugs at a personal use amount. And so what that means is it's no longer a felony if you have a personal use amount. It's a misdemeanor charge. In a perfect world, they would connect you with treatment and resources. But if you have 
um, more than a personal amount. And so with fentanyl, that's four grams, which is quite a bit of an extremely lethal drug. Uh, and so the issue, you know, from law enforcement's perspective is, oh, well, now they're just carrying 3.9 grams to avoid that felony. So we need to felonize. And But the problem is that, yeah, I mean, putting people in jail does not help. And so there are actually some really um, kind of cool caveats to, to the first rendition of this bill. And um, the way that legislation works is this is the rough draft, right? And it'll probably change many times before it actually gets passed. But it's very likely that some form of this bill will be passed this spring. And it talks about, in addition to felonizing fentanyl, that there would still be a Good Samaritan clause. But it really just says that the person wouldn't get a felony charge, so they might still get a charge. It's a little confusing. It also calls for a lot of public education within our schools um, and providing uh, access to Narcan and Naloxone, which is great, but also already exists in the state of Colorado. The only reason schools aren't carrying Narcan or doing this education is because of politics. It's totally legal. Everything is set up. Several school districts in Colorado do this. There's no reason that schools would be, need to pay for Narcan. Free Narcan is available to anyone all across the state. So great, but that's already happening. One of the other big pieces of this bill, though, is a focus on treatment. And the way that this was explained to me is that people would be given the option of taking a felony charge or going to mandated substance use treatment. So it's pretty obvious that most people would probably choose that treatment, right? Here's the problem. What treatment? Where? Mm -hmm. How are people accessing this? How are they affording it? In 2021, legislation passed that now people can pay for rehab with Medicaid. But I'll tell you, it is still a very messy, difficult process. And if you live out here in the Western Slope, there are very few options. There are very few affordable options. And who really has the time and money to go away for 30 to 90 days? Well, not to mention that then you also have to be on Medicaid. I mean, like that also is a whole process in and of itself. Mm -hmm. That if you're an addict, you're probably not taking the time to make sure you've got Medicaid. Sorry, but like, no, and that's it, yeah, and this another is another reality too. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and a huge part of what we do at High Rockies Harm Reduction, getting people connected with Medicaid and walking them through that process. Because mm -hmm. even as a person with resources, this paperwork and the appointments oh yeah and this <laughs> I mean my experience is it's like every time I go to a doctor I have to make four more appointments but I really don't feel like doing any of it it's so overwhelming for it's anyone so overwhelming Speak and the, like like navigating that stuff on the internet with Medicaid mm. and insurance like oh my god it's such a headache so and why are doctor's offices open nine to five like shouldn't they be open like five to nine like who when <laughs> who goes when do you I don't I just doesn't even make sense to me like if you work nine to five yeah how do you go to the doctor exactly Exactly. It's like that, um, you know, only ha being accessible to people who have a kind of job where they can say, oh, I've got to go to the doctor right now. But, you know, if you work in the food industry, you can't just say like, oh, I've got a doctor's appointment at this time. Like I, I got to leave for a few hours and you're leaving all your people hanging. You know, I mean, it just yeah, it's that accessibility thing that then it's only for people who can do it. And that's why peer support is so helpful in improving mm -hmm. access to care and relationships with providers because we can really streamline that process. But so, you know, there's this issue of great that they want to, you know, help people get into treatment, but that means that we need to create treatment resources across the state that are accessible and that are 
operating appropriately. And like the follow up to that is in the same vein that putting people in jail has not really shown to statistically help. Like and I and I never say never. Right. There are absolutely people who have these turning points. They, they go to jail. They go to rehab. They have an overdose and their life is turned around from there. Mm-hmm. But statistically and especially long term, that is usually not the case. And statistically, inpatient rehab, the way we do it right now does not work. And the thing about these programs, so first of all, anything mandated, anything you're forced to do, you're not going to get the, sometimes it will help and you'll learn these skills that can help you through a lifetime if you choose to apply them. But more often than not, there's just resentment and disconnection and it's not very helpful. Additionally, I see the biggest problem with inpatient rehab as being you're in the sterile environment, you're totally cut off from everyone and everything, you have all these you know, um, structured classes and skill building exercises, and then when you're just released back into your own community, especially if you don't have a place to go or you know, healthy support systems, like nine times out of ten, we just go right back to what we were doing before because that's all we know. That's our habitualized culture, you know? Mm-hmm. So really that's why we see that. Well, one of the main one of the many reasons why we see that treatments like that are ineffective. So, again, when we're talking about treatment, what are we talking about? And I would argue and I don't have data on this because it would probably be impossible to gather. But based on what we know about overdose risk and how these systems work, I feel like I could almost guarantee you that more people overdose and die after mandated treatment in an inpatient facility or jail than achieve long term stability and sobriety. Because long-term sobriety (laughs) is something very few people ever achieve. And again, like you hear terrifying data that it's like, how how do we know that like – how can we possibly know who dies sober? But uh-huh. really, like, you got to look at it from the standpoint of it's not just about being sober for six months or a year. Like, it really is a lifetime for most people. Mm-hmm. And your overdose risk is so greatly increased after those periods of not using, right? The tolerance goes down. And we see that over and over again. That's how my mom died. She went to rehab to appease the courts. It wasn't mandated, but she knew she was going to get mandated rehab. So she just tried to do it ahead of time right preemptively Mm -hmm. and the first time she used out of rehab she died individuals who leave incarceration settings are 128 times more likely to die in the two weeks following incarceration from overdose than the general public so again like i believe that felonizing fentanyl mandating treatment and I, I get like it's coming from this place of people we're losing people we're losing people all the time and people are afraid and people are worried and po- law enforcement and you know po- politicians and professionals all over the state want to save lives but this isn't how we do it and to be fair like they don't get it like I see it in the eyes of people they're so you know up to their necks in this and they're so they're floundering because they don't understand how to help people with substance use disorder because it's not a rational disorder, you know? Yeah. So it's it's hard for these folks with no personal experience to come in and say what's going to work for people when we know that these programs are not working for people. Yeah, well, and I mean, and the thing with sobriety or getting clean off of a substance is it is something that you have to want to do because it is a lifetime fight that you have to do every single day. You wake up and you choose to stay sober. You choose not to drink. You choose not to use. And that's something that you have to do every day of your life. And 
if you don't want to do it, you're not gonna because you just that's just the truth of it. And I also just wanted to give a little plug for um, a harm reduction approach because, like you said, like living a life of sobriety for a lifetime, like first of all, that's scary to anybody, mm-hmm. anyone who's not even an addict. That would be scary too. You know, it's like, what? I can't drink for the rest of my life. Like that's just it's too scary. I mean, and that's why we say one day at a time, but. Anyway, I think harm reduction, you know, then you can you can pick and choose what you're getting sober from at that time and what you what's manageable. Like you said, like you like you get so overwhelmed with so much stuff. And especially if you're someone who suffers from anxiety, (laughs) it's like all of it just it's so it just piles on and piles on and piles on. So absolutely. And I think more people utilize a harm reduction approach than they realize because Mm -hmm. so many people are either so ostracized from or so committed to Alcoholics Anonymous, which I love, but is not for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. That they don't see the harm reduction pathway because, yeah, for any of us, incremental changes are a lot easier. And, you know, it's fascinating because there's data that says um, chronic, other chronic diseases that are lifestyle based, like diabetes and heart conditions, have similar treatment recidivism as substance use disorder. Because think about this, like, it's Mm -hmm. to me very similar. And it's there's such this clinical disconnect, like doctors don't understand why we can't quit smoking, why we can't quit eating McDonald's. Like they told us, if you don't quit eating McDonald's, you'll die. That's hard. And that's an addiction too. the Mm -hmm. salt and the sugar and and all these chemicals, you know, that I actually am on day five of no processed sugar. And I think I'm losing my mind. Like it's so (laughs) fascinating, but it's the same. Like when somebody tells us you have to quit everything or you're going to die, like that's not enough for a lot of people. And even just like you said, yeah, you you can't help people who can't help themselves. Absolutely. Because Mm -hmm. also, you know, at one at some point you're going to need to go out there and and live your life alone you know Mm -hmm. like I have a friend who said you know somebody was always making sure I was going to AA meetings I always had a ride and so that day that I didn't have a ride I relapsed like we can't do everything for people right Mm -hmm. but even wanting to get sober is often not enough right like that's just like one step in the stages of change and it's because like this isn't a rational disorder this is a disorder that affects our rational thinking and then the substances affect our rational thinking and then the stress affects our rational thinking and so it really is like the more you use the harder it is to quit so it's all well and good for somebody who doesn't have a hereditary predisposition to substance use disorder or doesn't have an extensive history of trauma to say like why don't you just quit or why don't we just lock all these people up so they can dry out but it's like it's really not that easy think about your favorite thing in the world the thing that brings you the most joy and the most peace in life and what your response would be if a doctor told you you cannot do that anymore or I won't help you totally I mean I I've been sober from alcohol for three years now (laughs) but I've wanted to be sober from alcohol for a good I don't know six maybe even seven years it took me Mm. a really long time to get to a point where I now have not actually drank for three years you know but like I went you know I do months at a time I do weeks at a time and you know just always like I wanted to quit but it's so hard Yeah, and I feel that way about cannabis, which was never actually like when I was actively, you know, injecting heroin and and doing cocaine every night and drinking every night. I wasn't using cannabis. I wasn't really interested in that drug. I want things that will, you know, like allow me to party, um, not like make me paranoid about every word that comes out of my mouth. (laughs) Uh, But so I have I'm a 
proud medical cannabis user. I have been using cannabis regularly since my mom died. And so I can see it as a self-medication, but I, it doesn't mean I don't want to quit. And I vacillated so many times over the years and I have quit. I've done, you know, sober Octobers, the first six months of my sobriety. I was sober from everything except for nicotine and caffeine, but I didn't do cannabis. So yeah, I really, you know, vacillate there. And what's interesting about that is now that I have my med card and all my doctors and therapists tell me like this is medicine, I feel a lot less concerned to quit, even though deep in my heart, I still know this is a psychoactive substance that I'm addicted to. And I would rather like be able to function in the world without like needing to go home for my medicine. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But I just add that because it's super interesting how our culture influences that. And in Colorado, like it is very easy to get a med card depending on your condition, of course. Um, And then all of a sudden it's okay, right? And it's the same thing with opioids or stimulants. Like, oh, well, now my doctor is telling me it's okay. But there's a huge segment of the population that those doors are completely closed to because, and most of the time through no choice of their own, they have become addicted. Mm -hmm. And it's probably, I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard too because we see all this like, yeah, shame and finger pointing. Like not only do you have, you have to choose to enter recovery, right? But I don't think anybody chooses to become an addict, that's right. Like nobody yeah. wants to be that, right? No. This isn't an, a choice we make. And most of us, it's something that w- was kind of pushed on us, I think. Mm-hmm. And at a very, I think a lot of people um, at a very young age were exposed to drugs or alcohol, and that really messes up your brain. And when it's somebody you trust in a position of trust or authority saying that this is okay. So it just, it, it breaks my heart that people think that, you know, these are decisions that people make to be in these terrible spaces because some people, you know, were shot up by a dealer when they were eight years old. Like it's just there's terrifying stuff that goes out and we don't know everyone's story. So how can we place that blame and that judgment? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I mean, yeah, you just never. That's one thing we always have to remember is you don't know someone else's story. You know, you just got to know that we're all just doing the best we can. Yeah, and so I know, you know, I, I appreciate and respect that folks like our attorney general and some of our amazing law enforcement folks are, you know, backing this bill because they want to end this fentanyl overdose crisis. But, you know, my perspective as a professional in these issues is that really laws like this only exacerbate the problem. But, you know, we all care about this. We all need to work together. And it's not about like it it is reinventing the wheel because the wheel doesn't work like it's the wrong shape and size for what we're trying to do, you know. Yeah. And so um, I just, you know, want to make it clear that like I want to work with everyone who's passionate about these issues. And I just believe, you know, that um, we have to learn the mistakes from history because we do. We know so much more about substance use disorder now. We so know so much more about hepatitis C now. Like in the past 10, 20, 50 years, our, our knowledge of these issues has just really expounded, which is interesting because actually if you go back to literature prior to the drug war in like the 1920s and 30s it's like we entered this like dark ages of the drug war and we need to go back to this place of compassion to this Mm -hmm. place of medication assisted treatment Um, you know there are medications that can support people uh, with alcohol withdrawal with opioid withdrawal and there are extreme benefits to substances like mdma and ketamine and psilocybin in the treatment of behavioral health issues and we've known these things for a long time 
but judgment and stereotypes and propaganda and hatred and racism and politics and money. I read this great article. It said there's a one word answer to all of the problems in our nation. Capitalism Mm -hmm. has gotten in the way of actually rehabilitating people. We need to decarcerate and rehabilitate. And if we can all be open to admitting that we're wrong sometimes, myself 100% included, and if we can all work together, we can change the world. But if we're not willing to do that, we're just going to keep chasing our tail and making the same mistakes over and over again. And I don't have all the answers, and I don't know for sure that everything I say is going to work, but I do know what hasn't worked for most people is whatever we're doing today. So we got to try some new things. Yeah, and this bill is just more of the same. And speaking of not knowing everything, if you have any questions or just want to debate with Maggie, because she will do it all day (laughs) long if you want, uh, you can reach out to her at Maggie at HighRockiesHarmReduction.com. Yeah, and I just wanted to put one little shout out there in the terms of, you know, what can we do better? What have we not been doing right? Mid-Valley Family Practice is now doing a outpatient detox. So you can Mm. go and get your withdrawal medications and go through that detoxification process in the safety and comfort of your own home. Um, Through the COVID pandemic with telehealth, we've also been able to do, you know, uh, medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder inductions um, over the phone and in people's homes. So I think there are some really cool opportunities happening in this valley to get some some better kind of treatment and hopefully in our may episode we will be able to confirm with you our overdose data for 2021 that sounds great and you know another component of what high rockies harm reduction hopes to bring to the community is positive social engagement because i think that is hard when you don't have healthy friends you don't have healthy family you don't have anyone to lean on and really i think for me and a lot of people that is the hardest one of the hardest parts about getting sober it's a i have to change everything about who i am basically is what it feels like Mm -hmm. the the thing that has defined who I am my entire life is got to go, right? And also, what am I going to do and who am I going to hang out with? So we're really excited to hopefully, you know, especially as things, I don't want to jinx it, but as we're kind of like returning back to normalcy and into the summer months, um, we really are excited to start hopefully providing all recovery support groups, non-denominational, non-abstinence-based support groups. We want to do for a variety of, you know, affected people, parents who have lost children, children who have lost parents, friends who have lost friends. This has been Chemical World. We have our episodes every second Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. The next episode will be May 9th at 4.30 here on KDNK. And if you'd like to listen to past episodes, you can go to kdnk.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow KDNK, Chemical World, and High Rockies Harm Reduction on Facebook and Instagram. And if you have questions for Kenna, I think you can reach her at kenna at kdnk.org. That's right. And remember... You don't have to be sober to keep your community clean. Be safe. Have a great day. We are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical.